So the presence of God uh, is something that we as believers accept as fact, right? Uh, the presence of God, the existence of God simply is. We know it by faith, uh, by reason, by experience. So the presence of God is fact by faith. And it is also true that God chooses to be present with us. And this is an attribute of God, a truth about who God is and how God relates to us. God's presence with us is so integral to who God is that it is a name of God, Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation of God in Christ. So we have here two things, the reality of God's presence and the relationality of God's presence. We'll think about both of these things through the lens of the Psalms and some of the names of God that speak to how God is present with us. And if this sounds like a lot, it kind of is, uh, but I find that learning about God is kind of like drinking from a fire hose. Or I think of Moses who asked to see God and God says, that's going to be a little overwhelming for you, but you can stand and put your back to me and your face in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. You will know that I am there. And Moses leaves that encounter overflowing with leftover glory, simply after being in the presence of God. So much so that he has to cover his face because he was shining so brightly that the people could, could not bear to look at him. And that's not even our main scripture today, but, God, but the Bible says so many, so many things about God's presence, contradictory things sometimes. The presence of God is unbelievably glorious, but intensely personal, bright like a roaring fire, but comes to us in a whisper, beyond time and with us in time. I think that God resists our every attempt to put him in a box because God doesn't want to be in a box. God wants to be with us. So if God is with us all the time, why don't we notice all the time? How could a presence like that slip under the radar? Uh, and my best answer here is that it's not really God's fault, we're not paying attention, but also God has a highly developed stealth mode. I think that his presence in our lives is a bit like having a nose on your face. I think that his presence is, it's always there, it's constantly affecting how you take in the world around you, but you never notice it. Which is interesting because your nose, your eyes actually do see it all the time. Um, it's just in your peripheral vision, your brain doesn't pay attention and kind of writes it off as unnecessary information. I see some people going cross-eyed. You understand what I'm saying now? It's there. And this is, the analogy does break down a bit uh, because while your nose isn't worth noticing often unless you want to be permanently cross-eyed, God's presence is worth noticing. So we're paying attention today. And Psalm 139 describes God's presence like this. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you, O God, who formed my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. And there are four main dimensions of God's presence that I think this psalm highlights for us. We've got the omnipresence of God. There's a couple omnis about God. Uh, omnipresence, omnipotence, and some others. Uh, and this one describes the all-encompassing, inescapable presence of God. And we have the extra-temporal presence of God. And this is really just a nerdy way to say that God is outside of time, not bound by time the way that we are. And this could be a sub-point of omnipresence. Uh, I just bring it up because the psalm does, and I think it's really interesting. Then we have the pursuing presence of God and the personal presence of God. The first two are basic factual realities, and the second two are relational realities, relationalities, if you will. So omnipresence. The very first book of the Bible teaches us that God is creator, whose word and breath shape and animate God's creation, every inch of it. There are some scholars that agree that Yahweh, the first recorded name of God, comes from the very sound of breath, an inhale and exhale. This name reminds us that our God, our Lord, is the breath of life, present in every inhale and exhale of everything that breathes omnipresent. The psalmist here cannot even fathom being able to flee this presence of God. 
God is in the heavens, in Shoal, at the farthest ends of east and west and north and south. God is so intimately and inescapably present that there is no thought that is secret from him. No step away onto a path where God is not. Even the darkness that blinds us has no effect on God. We may not be able to see, but God is still there. Extra-temporal presence. This is admittedly a bit abstract and out there and hard to wrap our minds around. But the psalm tells us that God was present with us when we were intricately woven in the depths of the earth. God beheld your unformed substance, your essence, and had already recorded all the days that were formed for you when none of them existed. Before even your ancestors walked to the earth, you were held in the presence and the mind of God. So this tells us that we believe in a God who exists in and outside of time. God whose name is beginning and end, alpha and omega. And this should give us hope. God created the beginning and long ago proclaimed victory over the end. Who are we to doubt this God? God who has already won. And the pursuing presence of God. We know there is victory, but that means that there is a conflict to be won. So early on in the scriptures, we have the story of the fall, which is often thought of as separation from God. And I think it's not so much that God removes himself from us, his creation, but perhaps more that God removes his presence from our awareness, steps back and allows us to be our own gods and see what happens as we have chosen. Our sin blinds us to God because it centers our own selves in our vision, not God. And God allows us that choice because he gave us freedom. And God lets that choice play out. But God never stops giving us new moments to make a new choice. God relentlessly pursues us though he does not force us into his presence. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is present to his people again and again and again, pursuing them. After the expulsion from the garden, Eve testifies after giving birth that she was able to carry on the human race by the help of God. God saves Noah and makes a covenant with Abraham and speaks to Hagar. God works through Moses and says to Joshua, be strong and courageous for I am with you. God walks with kings and with prophets and keeps his promises over and over and over to an often disobedient, unfaithful people. In Isaiah 7.14 is the first mention of the name Emmanuel. It is the promise of a coming Messiah who was to be a sign of God's continued commitment to the covenant, a sign that he has not forgotten his people or his promise, that he continues to pursue them. And he does. 
God's people certainly did not expect God himself to be that sign, to be that Messiah. God is present with us because he pursues us. And personal presence. God's presence with us is deeply, profoundly personal. This psalm speaks of the unfathomable, glorious presence of God, but it is written in first person, which tells us that the psalmist is on speaking terms with this God. We call God Father, the best of fathers, the ultimate Father. And scholars say that it's not even out of place to call God Mother, for there is language in the Psalms and in other books that speak of God as Mother, caring for, protecting her children. In this Psalm, even, God is described as knitting us together in the womb, present with us in maternal delight. God is the good shepherd, too, the one who watches over his sheep and knows each one. This is a God who loves you, searches you out, and knows you. God knows you so well that he knows what you will speak before you speak it, what you think before you think it, good and bad. This is a God you don't need to keep secrets from. You can't. The God who created you from head to toe, made you and stood back and said, you are good. This is good. For from the very beginning, we know that what God creates is good. And this goodness is not erased because we've chosen separation and sin. We are not lost forever, but we are broken. And broken in a way that blinds us to God with us, broken in a way that we can't fix ourselves, we can't fix the world by ourselves. So God steps in. God, in Jesus, assumes human form to bring us back into closer relationship with him. God took on human form to be more present with us in a way that we could understand. Yahweh, beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, Father, Mother, Good Shepherd, Emmanuel, Why are these names important? Why are names important at all in a sermon about presence? And it's because presence is fundamentally relational. And names are how we relate. I wouldn't need a name if I didn't need to be referred to. I wouldn't be called anything if there wasn't someone to call me something. The fact that I am present and have a presence is, it doesn't register unless it bumps up against someone else's, right? Our presence is important because there are others who are present. Our presence is important because it comes from a God of presence. And our names, God's names, our names, legitimize and identify our presence. In many ways, they tell us who we are. Biblically, names are powerful, identity-shaping, purpose-making. And it's not quite the same these days, I think, uh, but I still went on a little bit of a journey 
to uh, figure out what my name means, just for kicks. So my name is Emmy. Uh, hope that's not a surprise. Uh, and according to Google, Emmy apparently means universal. Couldn't really figure out what that had to do with me or how I exist in the world, but that's okay because Emmy is technically just a nickname. It's what most of my friends call me, some of my family. But my legal name is Emily. Emily means industrious, hardworking, servant-hearted, servant. I think I, I would like to think I live up to this name on my good days. Uh, definitely not always. But Emily is a name that connects me to my family. My two younger brothers were the first to call me Emily. Um, my parents have always called me Emmy, uh, unless I was in trouble. And when my brothers learned that my name was actually Emily, they started calling me that specifically to annoy me. Um, and it worked at first, but then I did some like reverse psychology and I was like, you can't call me anything else. And then it stuck. Um, so they call me Emily. And Emily is also a name that connects me in some ways to my ministry. It's the name I use at my work. It's the name that staff and patients know me by at the hospital. And these days, I, I go by both. Both names mean something to me. And my last name is Luker. When I first looked it up, Google linked Luker to an old English word meaning keeper of the moor or marsh. So uh, with Emily, Servant, and Luker, I've been teasing my parents that they oh so creatively named me uh, Servant of the Swamp. Real flattering, right? <laughs> Turns out Luker, thankfully, is actually German. Um, it connects me to the little drop of German heritage I have underneath a lot of Finnish and Swedish. And it links me to my paternal ancestors. Fun fact, I am apparently related to the Luthers. Martin Luther, the reformer, is my 15th great-granduncle several times removed or something like that. Um, my family is apparently descended from his brother. So my name tells me a lot about who I am. It reminds me of my heritage, my purpose. It tells me that I'm a daughter, sister, friend. These are ways that I relate to others and ways that I am present with them. These are ways that I relate to God. I don't know, maybe I'm missing my calling as some kind of swamp hermit. I don't know, <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> I'm kidding. The most important name that I bear, that we all bear, the name that tells us who we are the most is child of God. But you know, there are days when this doesn't feel true. Days when we don't feel like children of God, don't feel God's presence with us. I think it's safe to say we've all experienced feeling far from God, cast aside, forgotten, alone, lost in the wilderness, in the darkness. There is brokenness, injustice, cruelty, suffering. We saw it yesterday in Buffalo. We see it here. We cannot fix it on our own, and we wonder where God could possibly be. Psalm 139 ends with a paragraph I did not read because it feels like 
It does not fit this lovely psalm about God's presence, and I did not know quite what to do with it. The last paragraph talks about hatred and enemies of God, and the psalmist asks God to smite them, to wipe their wickedness from the earth. Thinking about it now, in context of recent events, context of a broken world, I see how this piece of the passage shows us that God is big enough to take our anger. He's big enough to take the rage and the pain and the loneliness and the apathy and the agony that we throw at him. God is big enough to hold it because he has held it, because he has lived it. I think of the the thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus on the day he was crucified. The thief looks over and sees Jesus with the weight of the world on his shoulders and recognizes him as Messiah, recognizes himself as someone in need of saving. And he humbly asks, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus answers right away, today you will be with me. This is the ultimate comfort, the ultimate salvation. The full range of human emotion and struggle present in and around us is no mystery to our God because God is present with us through incarnation and spirit. This God who is present with us is merciful and just, working out a plan for redemption because of his boundless love. So we have no quick fixes, but what we do have is a deep reassurance that we are not alone, that we can cling to the God who promises to be present. We do this first and foremost, and most importantly, in prayer. We ask for and identify God's presence with us. We call God by name, and we pray. Lord Yahweh, beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, Father, Mother, Good Shepherd, Emmanuel. You have promised to be with us. Be with us now. Show us the power of your presence. Remind us that you are inescapable. You are in the struggle and already in the victory. Not even death could separate you from us, O God. Help us to see you and forgive us when we don't and pursue us anyways. Call us by name, O God. Remind us that we are your children. Train our eyes to see where you are at work and to join you there, acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with you. In the name of our Savior, who is one with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.